Hello, everyone. On the first day of Unleavened Bread, we discussed the tongue, we discussed the mind. Uh, I said we would get to the qualifications or disqualifications of Herbert Armstrong, and we discussed quite a bit about our attitude, our focus, and our perspective, and that it was to be positive. And we went into the book of Proverbs particularly to show this, and I left off when we ran out of time. But I'd like to pick it up there and examine a few more scriptures before we go on with some of the meat of what I want to talk about today. So let's pick it up again in Proverbs 18 and begin in verse 13. The same flow that we were seeing before that is just that the Proverbs are just full of. Over and over and over again, God repeats um, the same thing in different words. And we need to listen very carefully to that much emphasis from God. The Bible would not be nearly so thick if God did not repeat and emphasize certain things over and over. And this is one of the strongest that is in here. Proverbs 18, verse, uh, well, let's begin in verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. That's repeated in principle throughout the Bible many times. Verse 13, he that answers the matter, before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. This is something we've quoted over and over again over the years. But it's a very, very important concept to consider here. When we start discussing the sins, the problems, the difficulties, the weaknesses of another person, how do we know we've heard it? Now, we've heard what we've heard. But how do we know what we've heard is true, or that it's all true, or that whether or not it might be mixed with a lot of error? And we repeat it as gospel. We repeat it like, hey, this is an unimpeachable source. I know this is right. It sounds right. It must have been. But how do we know that? And if we're not sure everything we're saying is true, we're violating the principle of Proverbs 18.13. Answering a matter before we have all the facts. And we've seen many scriptures already in the last sermon where even if we had the facts, we had all the truth, there might be a very, very strong reason for not repeating even that which we had proved to be true. Because one of the greater and weightier matters of the law is mercy. That isn't a small part of the law. It's a great part of the law. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. So we need to consider that very highly before we get all excited. And why should we be excited about the sins of others anyway? On down to 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Death and life. Whether somebody lives or dies, commits suicide, whether they thrive, can often depend upon what we say about them with our tongues. Life and death are within the capacity of the tongue to give one way or the other. Chapter 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man defers his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. 
It is discretion. It is good. It is prudent to defer our anger, to not soon be angry, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now, why is it that human nature is just the opposite? We find that it is our glory to um, expose a transgression. We love to dabble in the sins of others. Is that doing to others as you would have them do unto you? Why is it we get so uncomfortable when people start talking about our sins, faults, and weaknesses, and yet we feel quite comfortable talking about someone else's? Are we breaking the law when we do that? You bet we are. Chapter 20, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. It is honorable not to cause strife with our tongues, but fools meddle in the sins of others. Now, what are we going to be? Are we going to be fools, or will we, will we be honorable? Chapter 20, verse 19. He that go about, goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flatters with his lips. Don't have anything to do with him, in other words. If we find someone who's a talebearer, a gossip, who wants to talk about the negative, the dark, the sinful, the evil, and, he, and other people, we're not to meddle with them. Stay away from them. A talebearer reveals secrets. There's something in human nature, some perverseness there, that just loves to whisper bad things about someone else. I'm not doing this, brethren, just to give another sermon on the Days of Unleavened Bread about putting crumbs out of our lives. Let's deal with loaves here. Let's deal with big things here. Let's deal with the summary of the commandments of God, to love God with our whole heart and to love man with our whole heart. Jesus Christ gave himself and his Father gave him because they loved the whole world, every human being. And when we talk someone down, we're talking down someone who is made in the image of God. Right now in the church, greater church of God overall, there is so much negative talk. Everyone, anyone, is fair game. Any doctrine, fair game. Now, yes, we're to study. Yes, we're to discuss things. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't judge another man's servant. God's servants, his people, those whom he has called. He selected each and every one of us specifically, by name, by personality, and called us. So God has his hand on each and every one of us who is converted and a part of God's church. And we need to be very, very careful how we judge one another because each of us belongs to God. And he is a jealous God. Right now we have a huge cancer going through the church of people putting each other down, putting ministers down, putting Mr. Armstrong down. On and on it goes. This is not a small sin. We don't want to deal with just the crumbs on the Days of Unleavened Bread and forget the weightier matters. 
Well, you might vacuum and vacuum and get all the crumbs out and forget a loaf somewhere. It's been done. Uh, 21, verse 10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. There are some people who just will be negative. That is their mindset. That is their personality. Well, what is conversion all about? It's changing that. You can't just say, that's the way I am. We have to change and be like God. Not just say, well, I guess it's just the way I am to, to find the, the bad side of things, to be cynical, to be sarcastic. No, that's Satan's way. That's the world's way. Analyze yourself. Can people find favor in your eyes? Or is it almost impossible to do? Even if someone wishes to please you, can they do it? Is it possible to do? Or is everything negative? Uh, verse tw uh, chapter 21, verse 23. Whoso keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Do you ever get embarrassed by repeating something evil about someone and then be found out or re be reported to them what you've said? And how embarrassing that can really be. Proud and haughty scorner is his name who deals in proud wrath, willing to put the other down. Having the kind of pride and presumption where we are quite willing to discuss other people's problems. And we're certainly not doing to others as we would want them to do to us when we do this. Chapter 22, verse 24. Make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man, you shall not go. There are some people who spill their anger out. I remember a couple of people, uh, I guess one in particular that I had a lot of correspondence with over the last oh, four or five years. And this person was always negative and down about how Herbert Armstrong was the greatest sinner that ever walked and he was a false prophet. And there are quite a few around who dwell on this today. They get these chains going on the internet where they're back and forth and forth and back about how bad he was. And I reasoned every way I could think of with this individual to try to get them to see that there was somewhere a balance in all this, but it seemed like the individual existed for the very purpose of spewing venom about Mr. Armstrong and the, the work that we knew as the Worldwide Church of God and so on and so forth. Finally, I just gave up and said, why don't you get a life? If all you want to do is be negative and hate-filled and spew that hatred on everyone else, it's making you miserable, why not just get completely away from it? Go get a life somewhere else. Do something different. Be happy. Be fulfilled. Find something good in life. Instead of spending your whole being, it seems, trying to discredit someone else. What kind of a life is that anyway? Go away, go away, walk away. But you know, somewhere deep inside that person, and many like that person, they know there is something good here. Either that, or they are simply motivated by Satan the devil to meddle in and be negative all the time. But God does not want us to be negative. 
and someone who has put themselves, I don't care how bad Herbert Armstrong or anybody else was, if you spend your life in negativity over that, that's not the kind of attitude God will allow in his kingdom. There will be peace there. There will not be negativity. And if you have allowed your character to be warped to where it is negative and down and a put-down in nature, how can you be in the kingdom of God? Our character is what is important. How we react is what is important. What we become is very important. And I understand there were wrongs. I understand there were abuses. But come on, let's move forward. Let's get past that. Whatever happened, happened. We can't change it. And why spend the rest of our life worrying about it? Let's get on and become like God is. Let's think like Jesus Christ. That's the key. And he tells us here not to make a friendship with a person who's angry. Just drop it. Get away from them. Because what? Because you'll become polluted yourself. Chapter 23, verse 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but be you in the fear of the eternal all the day long. Is there a certain amount of envy sometimes when we see people sinning? And we are told we're not to sin. But maybe we think they're getting away with something. Does someone who is sinning get away with anything? Absolutely not. Even David, who sinned egregiously before God, didn't get away with anything. He was forgiven. His sins were washed away. And he only received a certain penalty that God specifically put on him. But his reputation was soiled and harmed. His sin was even written in the Bible that we might see it and not go that way. And he had to live with all kinds of negative emotions and feelings around him for the rest of his life as a result of his sins. Yes, he will be king of all Israel in the world tomorrow, and God did not take him away from the kingship that he had then. But he suffered because of his sins, and anyone who sins suffers inside, whether anyone knows about the sins or not, because there are those emotions that are damaged and hurt by sin. So don't think that somebody got away with something. They didn't. They suffered then, they'll suffer more, and they may even suffer the judgment of God. But we need to be very, very careful about how we judge, as we shall see in a little bit. Chapter 24, verse 1. Be not you envious against evil men, neither desire to be with them. For their heart studies destruction, and their lips talk of mischief. Those are the things that they have on their mind. Why do we need that? Why can't we move past that? Some people seem to revel in it. They've made their whole life revolve around it. 24 verse 17. Rejoice not when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. It seems that we like to find the dirt on people. We like to put them down. We like to see them fall down. This is in human nature, but it has to be changed in us. Remember, we are to be transformed and not think like we used to think. Verse 18, lest 
the Eternal see it, and it displeased him, and he turned away his wrath from him. So God says, I might see you reveling in someone else's fall and in their sins, and I will turn and bless them because of your attitude. That's what this is saying. So it might turn around for that person, and they might be blessed because you put them down. Now, that would really frost you, wouldn't it? You were trying to get them to fall. You were trying to get them make, make them look bad. And God might just turn it completely around because of you. Chapter 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. The blood of Jesus Christ was there to cover, to hide, to get rid of sin. That is glory, the glory, the entire purpose of God is to wipe out sin. And those who repent will have their sins forgiven. They will be in the kingdom of God. And those who do not repent will be destroyed and removed. And sin will disappear. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings, men, is to search out a matter. Oh, let's find out. Let's read this, let's read that, let's ask someone, let's listen when someone talks, let's find out as much dirt as we can. That is the way of mankind. 25.9 Debate your cause with your neighbor himself. If you have some negative things about somebody that you've heard, maybe you should go talk to that person. Not maybe, it says here, debate your cause with your neighbor himself. Go talk to him about it. And, and this is a command, discover not a secret to another. Not even your best friend. Discover not a secret to another. That is the instruction of Almighty God. How many of us listen to that? How many of us have forgotten these very basic instructions? How many of us need to come back and get the very basics of Christianity again. This is one of the easiest sins for us to get into, to dabble with, and forget what God says about. 25.11 A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Very, very valuable to be able to uh, give a kind word, a compliment, something uplifting, something good. Notice the contrast between that and gossip, talking about others and putting others down and being negative. When we say a word that is fitly spoken, well spoken, that inspires, encourages, strengthens, helps, that's compared to golden apples and pictures of silver that might be hanging on the wall. Very, very valuable. Chapter 26, verse 20. Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. So where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceases. Now, this is what God wants. He wants strife to cease. He wants us to live in peace together. Verse 21. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly, just like being stabbed with a knife. 
burning lips and a wicked heart are like a potsherd covered with silver gross. Silver colored, but not real silver, and just covers a piece of clay pot. That's what he says burning lips and a wicked heart are like. He that hates dissembles with his lips and lays up deceit within him. When he speaks fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. He is there to destroy, to put down, and is of his father, the devil, who uses this kind of language and puts other people down. Whose hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. After a period of time, people know who the gospers are. They know who the ones who are putting people down constantly are. It says, if you dig a pit, you fall in it. And he that rolls a stone, it will return upon him. A lying tongue hates those that are afflicted by it. And a flattering mouth works ruin. Yeah, he hates those people, but he puts his tongue on. Is hate an emotion of God that is a good emotion? We need to get rid of hate. Chapter 28. Let's go to verse 13 here. Chapter 28, verse 13. He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. We like to cover up our sins, don't we? We like to reveal other people's sins. But here he says, don't cover your own. Confess them and forsake them. Recognize that they're there. Identify them and get rid of them. That's what the Days of Unleavened Bread are all about. That's the person that will have mercy. Gets the beam out of his own eyes so that he might then see clearly to get the mote out of others' eyes to help them. Isaiah 33, verse 15. We'll get away from the Proverbs now, but I want to pick this one up. Isaiah 33, verse 15. Um, he that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he that despises the gain of oppressions, that shakes his hands from holding of bribes, that stops his ears from hearing of blood, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, doesn't listen to things that would draw blood from other people. Hear no evil, see no evil, in other words. That's been paraphrased in a common modern expression but here it is of the Bible. Don't listen to evil and don't repeat evil. That is God's instruction to us, and this is a very, very important chapter in Isaiah, uh, which is talking about the one who will are the ones who will go to a place of safety, uh, verse 16, verse 17, and so on. Uh, God is telling us that he is not going to protect us unless we stop our ears from hearing evil and shut our tongues off. He has called us to peace. And the latter temple will have peace. And we will not be there unless we are peacemakers. That's all there is to it. Now with all these things we say wrongly with our tongues, are we making peace or are we stirring more trouble? This is a church-wide terrible, terrible condition. Now let's uh, analyze another thought here. 
We like to be forgiven, don't we? We like to feel that we're in God's good graces. Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And this whole book is talking about the problems in the church today. Because of his mercies, we are not consumed. Verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So every morning when we wake up, God's mercies are renewed to us. That is how he treats us. Now how does he expect us to treat others? Do we wake up ready to start anew and trying to tear someone down? Or do we give others a fresh start every day? We like to be forgiven. We like to pray at night and in the morning that God will have mercy on us for the uh, infractions that we might have done in the last day or the last night. We like to feel forgiven and warm and fuzzy with God. But are we willing to extend that to others? If not, we are in trouble. Now, let's get on down to Herbert Armstrong a bit and his qualifications. Because this becomes very important. Is there any scripture which indicates a reward for being an expert on someone else's sins? I ask this as a question. Can you think of one where being an expert in someone else's sins is a good thing? I think we've just read a lot of scriptures which indicate otherwise. I will give us a caution here, something to be very careful about, and that is judging another man's servant. This can quickly become idolatry. God may have a certain opinion of someone, and God said David was a man after his own heart. David sinned terribly in a lot of different ways. But God chose to forgive David. He chose to look at the good in David rather than the bad in David and use him anyway. Now what if I took the other side and said, I hate that man because of what he did? And we put our opinion and our judgment above God's judgment of that person. Now, if we put our opinion above God's opinion, what are we committing? Idolatry. My opinion is better than God's opinion of this person. Maybe we had better get busy living our life the way we ought to live it and let God do his judging of other people. Now, I understand that there are qualifications for the ministry that Paul gave to Timothy and to Titus And I think we're all quite familiar with those, so I won't take the time to go to them at this point. But they are all things that indicate temperance and moderation and uh, Christianity, obeying God in every part of their lives, being blameless, and so on. Now, no one has ever completely fulfilled every one of those except Jesus Christ. Every minister who ever existed in the early New Testament church, including the apostles, had their own problems. So they did not measure up completely, but those are guidelines, 
And with those guidelines, we have to judge whether a man should be ordained or not. And after he's ordained, he is going to make mistakes. Do we immediately kick him out? Or do we wait to see what is going on? David was a man whom God put in that position who had qualified. And then he committed some terrible, terrible sins. Well, somebody might say, well, that was before his conversion. Paul the same way. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, in his own words, which means he was among the worst, and Christ condemned them more than any other group of people in history. Hypocrites, snakes, whited sepulchers, on and on he went, and so did Paul, and referring to them once he got away from being one. But Paul himself had been a liar and a hypocrite. Paul himself had killed Christians. But you say, well, that was before his conversion. The same could be said of Peter, who denied Christ and then cursed, violently cursed, apparently, in order to cover his knowledge of who Christ was. Now, some of these men continued to make mistakes, and Paul called himself a wretched man that I am after he'd been an apostle for a long, long time, and said that he himself could become a castaway. So their problems continued to one degree or another, even after they were in the ministry. But you might say, for the most part, their bad sins were before conversion, and David's repentance in Psalm 51 came after his worst sins. All right, there's another example. Let's go, if you will, to Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3. And here we have one who is called Joshua. And if you tie together uh, Revelation 11:4 with Zechariah 4 and verse 14, you will find that this man is proposed to be one of the two witnesses, one of the prophets of God in Revelation 11. And... Chapter 3 shows that here was the high priest, represented by Joshua, the, the top of the ministry, in other words, standing for the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to resist him. And he is uh, designated as one who was a brand plucked out of the fire, about to go into Gehenna, because in verse 3 he was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And it was commanded that those filthy garments be taken from him and it says behold I have caused your iniquity to pass from you and I will clothe you with change of raiment and then he was told in chapter 6 that if he would diligently obey he would receive crowns and he would be part of the kingdom of God and he would continue as a prophet of God to fulfill the job of Revelation 11 as that of one of the two witnesses so here is someone who had been trained, who was already in the ministry and designated as high priest, who bore his own sins, not like Christ, who bore the sins of others, but here is someone who had filthy garments of his own. And God took those disqualifications away, cleaned him, prepared him, and said he would use him again in spite of himself. Now, this wasn't pre-conversion, because this man was already in the ministry. This man had already been trained, but this man was filthy. So, God's mercy can come above judgment, above condemnation. 
And this is a now scripture. This is a scripture having to do with the very end time of the way God deals with his ministry, his people, and this minister in particular before he uses him. And it is a contingency-based situation where, yes, the clean clothes were given, now he has to diligently obey, or he won't be used after all. So, God shows that mercy is truly a part of the weightier matters of the law. God will have mercy and not sacrifice. Let's notice this in um, Ezekiel now, Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. And I want to pick this up, uh, let's see, here in about verse 11. Say to them, as I live, this is a watchman, God says, Say to them, as I live, says the eternal God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn you, turn you from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Therefore, you son of man, say to the children of the people, the righteous of the righteous, the righteousness of the righteous, shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he commits, he shall die for it. Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die if he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right. If the wicked restore the pledge, give again and that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed shall be mentioned to him. He has done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live. So God says, if someone has been truly wicked, and they turn from that wickedness, God will never mention those things to him again. When he rises in the first resurrection, he won't have those sins pointed out, because his judgment is complete, and he's already made immortal, so why go back and review the past? Those sins will never be mentioned again. You and I will not stand before the judgment in the way this world is. We are standing there now. Our judgment is now. And when Christ returns, we will either be changed or we won't. We're not going to have to stand before Christ and answer for our sins. If we've been forgiven, we will rise. If not, we will not rise. Because our judgment will at that time be complete. Yes, the qualifications of the ministry are important and cannot be denied, but every one of us is going to fall short of one or more of those from time to time in his life. But if we repent, is God willing to show mercy? I think he is on any one. Now, let's go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. And here, let's pick it up at... Verse um, 14, Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if 
you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. If Herbert Armstrong committed sins in 1930, 1940, 1970, decades ago, and the man is dead, his judgment is complete, he will either rise or he will not, and we dote on and try to disqualify him for something he allegedly did in 1930 or 35 or 40, where does that put us, brethren? God says, if we don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will our Father forgive ours. If Herbert Armstrong sinned, what if the man repented? What if the man committed some of the things that he's alleged to have done? But what if he went before God and cried out with all his heart for forgiveness for his sins, and he was forgiven and rises in glory, but you won't forgive his sins and perpetuate his sins in books and in magazines and in articles and in sermons and in whatever other way, word of mouth to another human being, what if you... You in your heart don't forgive his sins and you die because you won't forgive that man's sins. Think about that pretty heavily if you are one of those who has this attitude today. Chapter 7. Judge not or condemn not that you be not judged or condemned. For with what condemnation you condemn, you shall be condemned. And with what measure you meet it out, it shall be measured to you again. Basic, fundamental principles of true Christianity. We cannot get away with condemning others, judging others, or not forgiving others, and not be judged the same way we judge them. I, for one, do not want to spend my life putting someone else down or living in hatred or negativity about someone, and then lose my chance at eternal life because of it. But those are the consequences we face when we cultivate these attitudes in ourselves and try to spread them to others. Our own judgment is at stake. Now, was Herbert Armstrong a sinner and a false prophet? Maybe because he did some things wrong. Maybe he committed some terrible sins early in his life. Maybe there were some abuses and misuses of money and various other things later in life. That's not my judgment. My judgment is to be perfect even as my Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5 verse 48. Was he a false prophet because he thought the end might come in 72? Well, was Paul a false prophet because he thought Christ was going to return in his own lifetime? No, those were just simply matters of timing that God kept to himself. Herbert Armstrong is no more a false prophet than the Apostle Paul was because of that particular instance. And if Herbert Armstrong committed some grievous sins early in his life, and I have not read the books, I've heard this and that, I'm not going to read them because I don't want to get my mind on that. Now, we have those who think that he was a false prophet and, and uh, is no good and his legacy is no good and we're not to follow him in any way. And on the other hand, you have those who think he could do no wrong. 
that everything he said and wrote was God-breathed. So that's the other ditch. But, I ask you, did God inspire him to keep the Trinity until 1940? That's what he did. Did he inspire him to set wrong dates? No, he did not. He allowed it. Did he inspire him or teach him or show him to keep Monday Pentecost for decades on the wrong day? Did he not let him understand government for decades on purpose? Perhaps on purpose, or maybe it was just a learning curve. But these are things that he had wrong. Did he promote Joe DeCotch and Stan Rader in righteousness? Now, God may have wanted those false apostles to come in there, but did it? Did he? Did Herbert Armstrong make good judgments with them? I would have to say no. What about keeping the Jewish calendar until the time of his death? It's easy to prove that the Jewish calendar is not godly and that it contradicts Scripture, and Scripture cannot be broken. But God allowed Herbert Armstrong to keep stay with the Jewish calendar till his death. So there are some things that God changed almost immediately in Herbert Armstrong, the Sabbath to begin with. Other things he allowed him to misunderstand for years and years. And he learned slowly over a period of time. So everything he wrote and everything he said was not God-breathed, and much of it is contradictory. The things he wrote in 1935, 39, 40, 45 were very different from some of the things he wrote in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because he learned. Now, people go back and quote a 1939 article on government and say, well, this was what Herbert Armstrong thought. Yeah, but he learned something different, didn't he? He taught a certain way about divorce and remarriage till the mid-70s, but part of it was wrong. Now, God hates divorce. I have no problem with that. And divorce is a very, very ugly, nasty terrible thing to ever have to occur. But there are certain allowances God makes for it scripturally because things break down and because people fail. Just as Israel failed Christ and had to be divorced. But Herbert Armstrong didn't understand 1 Corinthians 7 early in his life and later on he did and there are some people who don't accept 1 Corinthians 7 today. It makes some very, very plain statements that they are not willing to accept and which Herbert Armstrong didn't understand until 74. So, shall we read what he wrote before 74, 75, and go by that? Or shall we go by the later understanding, which truly was understanding? So, you see, there has to be a balance. Herbert Armstrong was a man of like passion as we are, he made mistakes. He didn't understand everything perfectly at the beginning. He didn't understand everything perfectly at his death. But he's God's servant. Now, how shall we know them? By their fruits. Now, maybe he had some sins early in life. Maybe he still had some sins late in life. But the point is, God built a work using that man. He used him to call many people to the truth. And yes, this is the truth. We don't have all the truth yet. We're still learning. We'd better be because we're supposed to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, not sitting on our hands or resting on our oars or sitting on our lees, as uh, is stated, I think, in Zephaniah. Yes, there were financial, governmental, and other abuses. 
but a good work was done. It wasn't the government of God. It was church government of men trying to govern like God and falling short as all have done. Why can't we find the balance? Why do we have to get polarized to the point we can't learn anything new because everything Herbert Armstrong breathed from 1926 to 1986 uh, was gospel when there were many contradictions and many learning experiences that he had on the on the other hand, why do we have to point at something he did in 1930 or 1940 or 1976 or whenever it happened that we focus on and say, well, this man was a false prophet and God can't use him because he's disqualified? Are we forgetting God's mercy? Are we forgetting the fruits of the man's life? Yes, there were some things that weren't good. There some things where he made mistakes. But overall, God used him to build the temple of God. Now that temple is being torn down today because of our sin and our Laodiceanism, because our unwillingness to follow some of these instructions, like the ones we're reading today. If our focus is on the bad, it is bad for us and to us. If we overlook the bad and look for the good, we can find it. Now, which are we instructed in Scripture to do? Again, I refer you to where we started in Philippians 4, verse 8 of the last sermon. We are to look for anything that's good. If we can find any purity, if we can find any positive thing about someone, look for that. This is the mind God tells us we ought to have. where we're to try to find good. God is trying to find good in us. He's trying to find a reason to save us, a reason to preserve us throughout all eternity. He is willing to overlook the bad. He is willing and even sent his son to destroy the bad. That is the mindset that we need to come to have, to support the weak, to strengthen the feeble-minded, to help those who might be in trouble, not put them down and try to destroy them, perhaps out of our own pride and haughtiness, thinking that we might be made better by putting them down. God has called us to peace, not to war, not to fight, not to argue, not to put down and try to destroy the reputation and character of Herbert Armstrong or anybody else for that matter, but that is a major problem in the church today putting any and everyone down, I suppose, so that we look a little more Philadelphian if we can make them look worse. Now, these are serious sins. And I'd love to be kind and gentle and loving and sweet and, and everything to everyone. But at the same time, God tells me to cry aloud and spare not and tell his people their sins. And this is a very grievous sin, a monster cancer, which is destroying the church. How much peace does the church have today? Why doesn't it have peace? Why is it producing the works of the flesh and not the fruit of the Spirit? Because 
we perpetuate the flesh because we revel in repeating each other's sins and not trying to cover them. We're not thinking like God. It is His glory to cover some, to co- cover sin, excuse me. Well, some are worse than others with this. Some perhaps don't imbibe in it too much. But there are some who are healing now. Some who... And others are simply dying in this. It's a type of infectious disease, highly contagious. Ezekiel 5, which we are all quite familiar with, says that a third will die of pestilence and disease, a third will die from the sword, and a third will go into captivity. And this is already happening spiritually to the church. We see a thousand dying at our left hand and ten thousand on our right hand, as Psalm 91 points out. The spiritually dead and dying are all around us. Some are beginning to be healed. Some are waking up and realizing what is happening to them. But Ezekiel there saves out a remnant, 10%, and then he even takes some of those out of his apron and throws them into the fire. And that is spiritually what is occurring to the church today. We are in captivity to sin. And those who have not already died of famine and pestilence and the sword are being affected by spiritual captivity and the kind of attitudes that we are talking about today. There's only going to be a 10% remnant left. Isaiah 1.9 says a small remnant. Isaiah 6 says 10%. One out of 10 will remain standing. So many will be thrown into the fire of tribulation. This is how bad this problem we are discussing is right now in the church of God. The internet is full of it. Uh, different rag newspapers and uh, sermons are full of it. On and on it goes. The tongue is the strongest muscle in the body. And that strength can be used for good or for evil to destroy. Do you want to stand before Jesus Christ and say, well, I destroyed so-and-so. Is he going to take kindly to that? Does discrediting others really make us better? No, it destroys us. Because if we don't show mercy on others, we will not have mercy and we will be destroyed. Christ says that in his very own words. There will be no mercy on the unmerciful. And there's no forgiveness for the unforgiving and those who condemn will be condemned. Let Herbert Armstrong's legacy lie as it is. Let God be his judge. He will either rise from the ground or he will not. He will be rise in glory or he will not. And what you say about him now will have no bearing and impact on that whatsoever, but what you say about him now could have great impact on whether you rise in glory or not, whether I rise in glory or not. Do we need to look up some Greek words here, brethren? Is this obscure and unclear? Are these pretty plain statements that Christ makes? He will show mercy on the merciful, and he will show no mercy on the unmerciful, and the exact amount of mercy and or condemnation we show 
will be the amount of mercy and or condemnation we receive. We need to think seriously about that. We ought to be teachers by now, but are we going to have to go back and learn these very basic things? It's the same problem Paul faced. That's why he wrote it. And we face it today. Many today say, well, we ought to be teachers, therefore I will be a teacher. But in many cases, we forget that we haven't learned the basics yet. We haven't passed Christianity 101, and yet we're casting around for stronger meat. Well, maybe this is the meat. Maybe this is the meat of Christianity. Maybe this is the real meat and bones. Maybe this isn't the milk at all. Maybe these are the things that we have trouble living up to, these very simple things. And if we don't live up to them, then we become hypocrites. And our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, or we will not be in the kingdom of God. So today, everyone leans to his own lack of understanding. We love to hear winds of doctrine, and we have itching ears for new things. Well, that's fine. We need to learn, and we need to study. And we need to pray. We need to learn more. And certainly we can improve in the things of doctrine. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't forget these very basic principles of conversion. And we still have a lot of sin to put out of our lives. Out of our lives. Now, yeah, we can discuss winds of doctrine. We can be intrigued by new things. But where is Christ in us, the glory of, or the hope of salvation? Is he being formed in us? Whose character do we display? Who is our father? The father in heaven or our father the devil? Depends on who we're listening to. Do we really want to be maggots chewing on any rotten meat we can find? Is that what you want to be in life? A maggot? Chewing on the flesh of others? Is our God the God of the flies, the Lord of the flies who lay the maggots? Flies also lay maggots on live animals, brethren. If you've been around the farm very much or around animals much, you'll find the flies, if there's a cut on a cow or a horse, a fly will lay those eggs in that cut. And those eggs will hatch. And they will eat on the Alive flesh, not just the dead. And those maggots will work and work and work on that horse or cow until they chew their whole rear end out, if that's where they are laid. I've seen it happen, and it goes on every day. I ask you, do we have the spiritual courage to tell people we don't want to discuss the negative, the evil, the wrong? the sins of others. Do we have that kind of spiritual courage? Or do we aid and abet and sin by listening and contradicting Isaiah 33:15, Seeing no evil, hearing no evil. And we have just as many ears as we do eyes. Two each. People who spew evil should be quarantined separated. God says have nothing to do with them. We just read it in Proverbs. We are told so. Let them feed on their own garbage if they wish. 
Don't sit down at their table and eat of their slop. Spiritual slop in this case. We have to discipline ourselves not only not to repeat evil, but not to hear evil. And sometimes it takes real courage to tell somebody, I don't want to hear that. Do we have that kind of courage? When Christ comes and sees a bunch of hogs eating swill, will he be concerned as to which hogs supplied the slop? Or will he simply see slop on all of them? Who is the speaker and who is the listener? What difference does it make? One is as bad as the other. Isaiah 52 instructs us to put on white garments, garments of righteousness. We were all filthy. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does it make our slop and our sin smell better because we can enumerate the sins of others? Christ was the filthiest of all. When he hung there on that stake, he was the filthiest man who had ever lived. And his father couldn't stand the sight of it and turned his face from him. And Christ said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the reason he was forsaken is because he was so filthy, the father couldn't stand him. But he wasn't filthy because of his sins. He was filthy because of my sins and your sins, and the sins of this whole world. There is none righteous, no, not one. How many sins does it take to kill you? How many sins does it take to disqualify you? Just one. I have committed far, far more than that. So did Herbert Armstrong. So did the Apostle Paul. So did Peter. So did James. So did John. They all sinned. They all broke the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus. They didn't live up to those perfectly. None of us have. Do we go back decades? Do we go back centuries and try to dig out their sins or Herbert Armstrong's sins? Your sins, my sins? That is not the glory of God. We are not putting out crumbs here. This is a major sin in the church. It's a major sin between us, between brothers and sisters, where we put each other down and talk negative things. When Philippians 4.8 tells us to try to find anything good and to accentuate that positive, this is a highly contagious cancer, a plague, if you will, like the Black Plague, or anthrax, or hoof and mouth in Britain and uh, Europe, as it's going on right now. I don't care, brethren, what Herbert W. Armstrong's sins were. I have beams in my own eyes I have to be fighting to get out. If I have enough trouble getting mine under the blood of Christ, how can I get someone else's there? And is that really our intent, is covering their sins by uncovering them? Does that make any kind of sense? But God tells us clearly over and over we are to be covering people's sins. Look at what God is doing. He's spewing the whole church out. He likens us to vomit. <coughs> he can't stand this mess. 
And he's turned his face from us, as Isaiah and other places say. Yet most of us think we are the Philadelphians and that everyone else is the problem and their fair game and that they can be talked down. What nauseating, self-righteous swill. I am a sinner. I am instructed to put my sin out, not someone else's sin. I must take it personally, and so must you, or this will continue. Think about poor Ezekiel lying there on his side, day after day after day, for what, 390 years for Israel, and then 40 for for Judah? Summer, winter, spring, and fall. He couldn't even turn over. He had to cook his food on dung. Because of what? Because of our sins, the sins of Israel and Judah. And we are spiritual Israel and Judah. And those are end-time prophecies. Ezekiel wasn't laying there just for the sins of physical Israel. He was laying there for your sins and mine. Satan broadcasts sins. He keeps them alive. He bandies them about. He reminds us constantly. Christ is just the opposite. He covers sin. He hides it. Who are we to be like? We are to be like Christ. Our object is to help people get over sin, to cover a multitude of sin. We're not here to hide and sin, hide and sin. We are here to hide sin. Whatever is of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any good about someone, find it. Exploit it. Be the one in the group of six or eight or ten who stands up and says, Oh, yeah. (laughs) You can sit here and enumerate those people's sins or that person's sin, but I found something good in them. Here's something good about that person. Well, you don't have to do it in a, an obnoxious way necessarily, but find something good. Think of something good and think on those things and repeat those things. Surely we can find, if we are converted at all, surely we can find something good in one another that we can repeat because God covers sin. Do we want to waste Christ's sacrifice How big was that puddle of blood at the stake? Did it just cover the ground right around the bottom of the stake? Or did it cover the sins of those around the stake? Those who stood afar off watching, maybe like Peter. Did it cover your sins and my sins millennia later? How big was that sacrifice? Was it big enough? to cover Herbert Armstrong's sins? Was it big enough to cover my sins? Was it big enough to cover your sins? Don't waste it. Do as Christ did. His whole purpose, his whole desire, his whole reason for coming was to cover sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Christ was the absolute filthiest man who ever lived as he hung on that stake. And God covered all that sin, your sin and mine. Every human being's sin is subject to being covered by that blood. 
That's how big the sacrifice of Jesus Christ really was. How big are you? How big am I? We aren't as big as Christ. His whole purpose for coming was to cover sin. And we have to come to think like him. Not reveal, but cover sin. Under the blood of Jesus Christ, and not to reveal a matter of intrigue or filth or waste or sin that someone else has committed because it does come if that person is repented of that under the blood of Jesus Christ. And who are we to bring it up again? If, if God the Father and Jesus Christ will never mention those sins again as we saw in Ezekiel 33, who do we 